0: The Irish Nation. The Freeman era started off with a flurry, followed by a collapse of epic proportions as Notre Dame blows a 28-7 to lead, loses the Fiesta Bowl 37-35, to the single biggest blown lead for a Notre Dame team since 1991. New coach, new era, all the hype.
1: Unfortunately, the same story. ND comes up short again on the biggest stage, despite a much more favorable matchup this time against Oklahoma State compared to, say, Alabama, Georgia, or Clemson. Um, oddly, if you were monitoring the lines closely, it swung at the last minute for this game to where uh, Oklahoma State um, was actually favored by a point. So we talked about Notre Dame being favored going into this game. Technically, at, at, at the at kickoff, Notre Dame was actually uh, an underdog by a point. Not really sure exactly what, what swung that, but um, worth mentioning. Regardless, this one certainly stings, no doubt. Punch to the gut. Uh, And 2022 uh, began on a really sour note for Irish fans.
0: We were going to recap this game in the same show as recapping season grades for the team and looking ahead to the 2022 season. But this was such a fun season, such a great group of young athletes to cheer for. So we're going to bifurcate this Fiesta Bowl loss. We're going to focus just on the Fiesta Bowl here in this show and then come back and recap the season and, and look ahead to next year in, in a separate show that we'll try to get out in the next week. So with that, let's dive into the festival. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Hello, darkness, my old friend. Of course, the famous Simon and Garfunkel song, The Sound of Silence, popularized by the sitcom Arrested Development, a fitting transition to this segment for Notre Dame fans who have seen this show before. Notre Dame falls short yet again in a New Year Six Bowl, not having won on that stage since the nineteen ninety-four Cotton Bowl. We're gonna break this recap up into two parts. First we're gonna recap the game and, and the advanced metrics that provide some context of what happened and, and where things went wrong. And then we're gonna look at a couple of key takeaways that have bigger picture impact for where this team goes forward and how Notre Dame fans should try to contextualize this game uh, for the state of the program heading into next year. One of the first things I want to mention here is uh, it was really the tale of two
1: halves for this game. Um, not surprising when you have a 28-7 lead, you must have been doing something well. And then to then blow that lead, you must have done something horribly wrong. Um, we talk about success rate a lot. That's staying on schedule, so that's 50% of yards on first down. 70% of the yards on second down and then converting on third and fourth down. Offenses elite offenses to be one of those like top uh offenses in the country, you want to be in the high 40s generally. Um Oklahoma State their defense was very effective at limiting opposing offenses success rates. They were actually they allowed the sixth lowest success rate in the country at just 36%. Well, in the first half Andy essentially had it figured out. They had a 49% success rate against one of the top defenses in the country. That's about as good as a job as you could have hoped for. Um, however, in the second half, it plummeted all the way down to 29%. Uh, quite Again, quite a dramatic drop. Um, and then additionally, Oklahoma State didn't really generate a ton of havoc. Those are the disruptive negative plays. So that's batted down passes, sacks, interceptions, fumbles, etc. cetera. Uh, coming into the game, this is an area where they were quite effective. They generated the fifth highest havoc rate, Oklahoma State's defense, at 23%. Um, well, it ended up being at uh, 19%, and a lot of that uh, came in the fourth quarter when Andy had to play very aggressively. He had to take a lot of shots. Um, but if you look at like uh, most of the game, by and large, Notre Dame did a pretty good job of, of limiting uh, those havoc plays um, or limiting
0: Oklahoma State's defense's ability to generate those havoc plays, rather. I, I agree. We'll come back to offensive line play later on in the show. But we only allowed two sacks despite throwing the ball 68 times, a ridiculous number we, we need to talk about later. But in general, this wasn't about Oklahoma State's defense getting us disrupted. This was about our offense not being able to consistently stay on schedule in the second half. And on the other side of the ball, it was the exact opposite. Oklahoma State ran a tempo offense. We knew that coming in, and and it very clearly wore down Notre Dame's defense. And that showed in Oklahoma State's success rate by quarter. They had a 30% success rate in the first quarter, really not able to get much going at all. That jumped to 56% in the second quarter, 55% in the third quarter, and 46% in the fourth quarter. So really, as this game wore on, Oklahoma State completely figured it out. And I heard a lot of pundits say, how come we aren't giving Clarence Lewis safety help on Tay Martin, Oklahoma State's top wide receiver? Well, their second receiver had 10 catches for 137 yards. I also heard, well, how come we can't just spy Spencer Sanders, the quarterback? Well, because Jalen Warren, the running back, also had 110 yards from scrimmage. At some point, you can't spy the quarterback and focus on a running back and double-team two receivers. You just don't have enough players on the field to take away everything. And whenever we adjusted, credit Mike Gundy, he adjusted right back when we tried to take away the quarterback running. It opened up passing plays, and they picked us apart. When we tried to drop in the zone and, and play coverage... The quarterback and the running back got got things going in in the running game, um, especially on scramble. So, you know, by and large, credit Oklahoma State. They avoided big mistakes, and they picked us apart with really great balance. They had four different players go over a 100 yards from scrimmage, and Notre Dame just didn't have the answers on defense.
1: Agree. I have a couple quick add-ons there. Brett, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but um, their success rate, Oklahoma State's success rate on offense, was lower in the first quarter. However... A lot of that, uh, was due to mistakes. Not big mistakes like interceptions, but it was things like drop passes, kind of like little, like plays that were n- narrow misses, I guess, in terms of, in the sense that they, uh, very easily could have been successful plays, but, um, there was like a minor mistake made. Well, they cleaned that up as the game went on and, um, no surprise their success rate, uh, increased, uh, as well. And we also mentioned this in our preview. So Oklahoma State, their offense generally was not very a, a very effective one um however what was limiting for the most part limiting them for the most part was that they tended to make a lot of mistakes in terms of interceptions turnovers etc um they generally outside of like the end of the game where they had a couple of those fumbles they generally played a pretty clean game and um when they're not doing that um you know their offense actually has demonstrated some ability to move the ball and and so unfortunately that's kind of what we we came up against um moving on to our next topic uh the line of scrimmage Going into this game, uh, a big question was if Notre Dame's offense had actually improved in the second half of the year or if it was just because we played worse competition. Uh, for example, we hadn't played a top 50 defense since the Virginia Tech game. And we broke that down into two parts. Uh, so that you had faster tempo and quicker throws. And then the other was the line of scrimmage. We'll come back to tempo and play calling a bit later. Um, but focusing on this game a bit in terms of the line of scrimmage, the offensive line, I wouldn't, it, I wouldn't say that it won the line of scrimmage in the run game. We'll come back to this later. I don't, I don't think that they lost it though, uh, but they certainly didn't win it here. Um, obviously, D- Logan Diggs, he had that crucial fumble lost in the fourth quarter. That was, a, that was a punch to the gut. But uh it wasn't really. I wouldn't say this was on the running backs. Kyron, um, as good as Kyron Williams is. I just don't think that there was enough opportunity there for even someone like him, as talented as he is, to to make a huge difference here. Maybe not. You never know. Someone as good as he is, you know, maybe they can they they he can just even generate one play out of nowhere that uh that is just like one of those like highlight sports center top ten moments. But I, I do think by and large, um it wouldn't have been easy for Kyron had he actually played this game.
0: I completely agree. The advanced metrics agree as well. The metric we use to look at this is line yards. Line yards measures the push that the offensive line generates before the running back is contacted. The average team has line yards per rush of 3.1 yards. The best team in the country over season is at 3.7. The worst team in the country is at 2.4. So for context, you want that number to be around 3.5. If, if you're getting, you know, three and a half yards per rush of push from from the offensive line you're going to be in a really good position and and conversely if you're only getting two two and a half yards per rush you're going to be in a bad position where you're just not getting that much push Notre Dame on the season averaged 2.9 so that's below average but but you need some context on that they averaged 2.4 in the first half of the year almost last in the country and in the second half of the year they were around 3.3 which was above average in this game against Oklahoma State The offensive line generated just 2.2 line yards per rush so again they weren't getting blown off the line but they weren't generating a push 2.2 line yards per rush is basically just getting one step forward and remember this is about the line yards per rush that we had against wisconsin and cincinnati in, in the low twos and in those games kyron williams rushed for 33 yards and 45 yards respectively so this wasn't about Logan Diggs. I know he had the fumble. I know Twitter was all over him. This wasn't about Chris Tyree not being able to you know, be patient or read blocks or anything else. There just weren't blocks there. We, we, we weren't getting blown off the ball. We weren't allowing negative plays running the ball. But line yards per rush doesn't lie. And when that number's in the low twos, you just don't have running lanes for, for running backs to get going. And that, that's what happened here. The, the offensive line just didn't create space and it led to the offense being very one dimensional, particularly with Jack Cohn on the field. And we'll get back to playing calling, but it led to us throwing the ball 68 yards. It led to us getting into a shootout, um, in, in against a tempo team that is used to playing tempo. We're not used to playing tempo. And so with that line yards per rush at, at 2.2 in this game, really tough uphill sledding to, to find sustained success for four quarters for, for the offense.
1: Yeah, and so we did say that, uh, the Notre Dame offensive line didn't lose the line of scrimmage. Um, if you look at the, the line yards that, the stat that Brett mentioned, like, yeah, certainly, I think from like a running the ball standpoint, not a huge sample size. We didn't run the ball that much. Um, uh, part of that is because we clearly were not really getting a whole lot of push there. Um, but we'll touch about this on this later. The offensive line was pretty good at, at uh, limiting havoc. And that's, I think that's, uh, that, that's kind of what we mean when we're saying that, Um, they didn't like lose the line of scrimmage necessarily. So they did, they did poorly in this area and we'll touch about this later. They did pretty well in some other areas too. Now moving on to our, our our next topic, uh, tackling. And this is something we talked about quite a bit in our preview. Um, this is one of our, our key things to look out for. We talked about Jalen Warren. He's the Oklahoma state running back, uh, fourth in the country in missed tackles. Um, and he certainly, uh, I would say certainly, uh, this like lived up to the billing and he was, we were actually fourth in the country in tackling a great pro pro football focus um, so, basically, this was a strength-on-strength uh, matchup. Oklahoma State's great at breaking tackles, really good at, at, at tackling. Um, however, it became pretty apparent early in the game that we were, were having some str- struggles like bringing down ball carriers. J.D. Bertrand, D.J. Brown both missed five tackles. Before this game, the most missed tackles by any player in a game was three, which was Bertrand twice. Um, other than that, no other player had missed more than two tackles in the game. The team, in total missed 20 tackles. And then for some context here, Andy averaged about eight missed tackles per game. So that's about two and a half times higher than the se- season average. Um, so clearly our strength here of being able to cleanly bring down uh, ball carriers. Uh, we did not uh, show up like we normally have uh, throughout the duration of the season. Uh, now to be clear, JD Bertrand, as, as we pointed out, he has had some struggles in this area this year. We highlighted that before he is a young player though, and he has a bright future and he was thrust into a starting role Uh, we've talked about this before this season. The linebacker position group as a whole had a lot of injuries, not a whole lot of depth there. So Bertrand was getting, uh, a lot more reps, a lot more exposure than he probably would have otherwise. Um, and, and and generally he hung in there. He had some, he definitely took his lumps, but I think he, he showed pretty well. And I think, um, looking forward, he's someone that you can be optimistic about. Um, but not even just focusing on Bertrand. This was, this was a group effort, the tackling miscues and, uh, collectively the tackling, uh, was bad.
0: Yeah, and of those 20 missed tackles, Jalen Warren, the running back, in both the running and passing game, he broke nine of them. So across the board, we, we definitely missed some big tackles. Uh, but consistently, uh, Jalen Warren was picking up yards from scrimmage that kept Oklahoma State on schedule by, by beating that first guy. And it, it added up, and, and you can see it in the tackling grade by pro football focus. Notre Dame, as a team, uh, was, as, as you mentioned, Mike, fourth best in the country We had graded out in the 70s in this metric in six straight games. Our lowest grade on the season was 56 way back in the season opener. That was the only game we were below 60 for the entire season. And 60s is average. 70s is above average. So just to kind of set the benchmark of where you want that grade, you want to be high 60s or 70s. And and that's really where where we lived on the season. Notre Dame's tackling grade in this game as a team was 44. Um, That is low average that's abysmal that that's just like not getting the job done in a way that we haven't seen from Notre Dame all year it's as if it was, I think it was twofold I think early in the game there was some rust some some bowl game rust not having played competition in in a month and certainly in the second half the team was gassed we we were um, not in shape to keep up with the tempo we didn't have the depth to do it and and frankly we, we talked a lot about tackling before we moved to big picture takeaways the other thing we, we really just got to call out is is the secondary got burnt. Um, I thought Cam Hart played a pretty good game. I thought Tariq Bracey played a pretty good game. Um, Bracey was targeted nine times and, and only allowed three catches, so he held up pretty well. Unfortunately, this was a rough day for Clarence Lewis. He was targeted 13 times in coverage, allowed 12 receptions going for 141 yards um, and, and two scores. So a tough day for Clarence Lewis. You know, really bright guy that that's played really well for us all year, um, but this was you know one of his worst performances, and and I feel for the kid. Um, I, I know he's beat up about it. Coach Freeman was was asked about it in the post game press conference. It, it was pretty obvious to anyone watching that uh, Clarence Lewis was getting picked on, no, no matter whether he was lined up against Presley, their second receiver, or, or Martin, their first receiver. And this was his worst game of the year, um, and 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 it showed. And so between, you know, Clarence Lewis on the outside and then tackling on the inside, it just made for a really tough recipe for, for this Notre Dame defense to get off the field. Definitely. Um, let's, uh, turn to some big picture takeaways.
1: The first, uh, to mention here is, uh, the honeymoon is over for Marcus Freeman. Um, he actually acknowledged this in his post game press conference. Um, he also and i i love that this is where his mind immediately went he also mentioned he was immediately focused on getting back to work and not letting this game uh define his team um but uh again i think you got to have a when you're in a position like the head coach of notre dame you got to have a short memory you can't dwell on things like this you got to take your lessons from it and just put your head down and get right back to it um again it's winning is hard we say that all the time Certainly this was a frustrating way to lose. Um, but I think Marcus Freeman's response was, uh,
0: what I would have hoped for, um, given the circumstances. I, I agree. And I'm about to go on a bit of a rant that I hope is not perceived as a hot take. Um, I, I don't mean this as a hot take. And certainly, um, I'm a fan in, in the heat of the moment right now as well, upset about this bowl game. Um, but we really try to keep this focus on analytical takes on, on this show. And, and I'm, about to say something I think our fans will find controversial. I, I I, hope not. Um But we missed Brian Kelly in this game. Brian Kelly is a really, really good football coach. I know that's not a popular f- opinion among Notre Dame football fans, particularly after he left us. I don't think that was a very popular opinion before he left us. Um But he never lost a 21-point lead. And there's a reason why he uh, has the longest active win streak against unranked teams. And there were times where uh, a lot of times Notre Dame fans criticized him for getting conservative with the lead. Well, he got conservative with the lead because he wasn't caring about dominating teams. He was caring about winning the football game. And in this game, we had a 28-7 to lead. And it was 28-14 after the half. And we proceeded to pass on 28 of 29 offensive plays. And if you include the last drive of the game... Um, which I put in the garbage time bucket because we are down two scores with a minute left, that was 36 of 37 plays. And we'll, we'll come back to Tommy Reese next in, in play calling, but that's just a total head-scratcher. And there's a reason why Kelly had so much sustained success. He's, he's a very, very good in-game coach. And I have all the confidence in the world that Marcus Freeman will get there. I'm very optimistic about the hire. But Notre Dame fans need to realize that in the near term, there will be some lumps. Marcus Freeman, especially in in-game situations, is not as experienced and is not as good of a coach as Brian Kelly today. He might be a better recruiter. He might be better at player development. He might be better in the long run. But in, in the near term, there will be hiccups. Uh I was hoping that that wouldn't happen in this game. I was hoping you know that might happen in Columbus next year in, in the season opener against Ohio State. It might happen against Clemson next year against Davos Sweeney. I was hoping it wouldn't happen on this stage in this game, and it did. Uh, we were not prepared with the best scheme. It was clear that Oklahoma State was dictating tempo. It was clear we got caught in a shootout that is not our style, that it doesn't fit our personnel. It doesn't fit what we've done all year. And so in the long term, will Marcus Freeman be a great coach? Will he have a better shot at winning a title than, than Brian Kelly? Yes, I agree with all of those things. And I'm still very, very optimistic about the Freeman era. So please don't take this out of context. But what... Really stood out to me watching this game is that it is clear we've got a rookie first time coach who's 35 years old and has a lot of learning and maturation to go through as a head football coach. And that showed in this game going up against Mike Gundy, one of the longest tenured coaches in, in power five football.
1: Brett, I, I don't think that's a hot take. Marcus Freeman, we always knew this. He was the, the high risk, high reward guy. He, he brings a level of charisma that Kelly just doesn't have. And I think that boosts our ceiling. The chance of breaking through and becoming one of those elite programs is much higher when you have someone like that who can just just get players to buy into a program, get these elite recruits to come to your program. Um, but I think the Fiesta Bowl was a reminder of the opposite side of the coin, which is the risk. And this was his, this was his first game. You have to keep that in mind. He hasn't had a full offseason to put his, his stamp on the program. There were key opt-outs, which is, of course, fine. Those guys need to secure their NFL future. So you have all that going on here. Um, into this game. Um, So, I don't know. This game doesn't change my optimism of the Freeman era, kind of like you said, Brett. We still know he has an exceptional work ethic. He has a natural charisma and ability to connect with people. And we also know that he's a sharp guy from an X's and O's standpoint on defense. He's put together some really good defenses. Um, But the game was a sobering reminder of the speed bumps that we may see from a first-time coach that Kelly was very adept at avoiding. Um, Kelly really had about as stable a program as you could have you could have hoped for and I, I do think in this game if you had that going in um, I don't know this just seems seemed like a type of game that Kelly you know wouldn't lose of course there are a couple examples in the past I think like Michigan and Miami those are those are the two that immediately come to mind where we inexplicably had like a bad performance but by and large Kelly was really good at, at showing up for these types of games a game where we have a good opponent but maybe not one that's like totally elite where we're outmatched but a good opponent with a winnable game, by and large, we would always like show up for those. Um and so, yeah, I mean I think um I think Freeman has a lot of potential. I'm excited about the the trajectory of the program. Um but yeah, it shouldn't be shocking that with a, a rookie coach, a rookie head coach, that um you could have uh, a, a game kind of end up like this.
0: And to be fair, we did show up, right? We lost the Fiesta Bowl by two points. It was yeah. a close game, it was a classic, we had a twenty eight to seven lead. Right, so th- this wasn't an abysmal failure, and and Brian Kelly lost big games, right? You mentioned the Alabama and Georgia and Clemson's and Michigan and Miami, right? That there's a host of things we can list off where Brian Kelly didn't win big games either. But we said this when Kelly uh, left the team that Brian Kelly was a really really good coach, and this was his choosing, not our choosing. If if it was up to Notre Dame as a program, we 100% would have had Brian Kelly coaching us through next year and, and beyond. And so, therefore, that just means we are in a worse position than we otherwise would have wanted to have been in. Um, and we are really excited about the Freeman hire. But as we called out on the show where, where we previewed Freeman getting hired, coaching hires are risky in college football. And most of the time, they don't work out. And so I think having realistic expectations, is, as Freeman said, moving on from this honeymoon era, moving on from this idea that it's just going to be... Perfect. I think you used the word, you know, boom, boom, and boom. That That's not the trajectory, how this stuff works out. And so he gets that. Marcus Freeman 100% gets that and knows he's got a lot of work to go do. We Notre Dame football fans also need to be realistic about that. Turning to the other coordinator in this game, Tom Reese. Now I'm going to be a begrudgingly old fan here uh, going off on both coaches in this game. We mentioned it already. Reese called pass plays on 28 of 29 snaps in the second half were passes when this game was still in hand with Notre Dame, either leading tied or trailing by six points or less. So when we had the ball with a chance to extend the lead, take the lead or, you know, come back, we passed on 28 of 29 plays. That just doesn't work. I get it. The running game wasn't working. We mentioned line yards was not good. We weren't generating a push on the offensive line. In the first half, rushing plays had a 15% success rate, and pass plays had a 64% success rate. So by no means am I suggesting we should have started pounding the rock. This is not a quote-unquote run-the-damn-ball podcast. However, it's important to know that on the biggest stages against elite defenses, you need to be able to throw the ball. I totally 100% get that. Time and time again we've seen this. In games against Georgia, Clemson and Alabama, just for a few metrics here, if you look at the Georgia 2019 game, the Bama Rose Bowl, Clemson in the ACC championship game, and Clemson back in the 2018-19 Cotton Bowl, Notre Dame's leading rusher averaged about three yards per carry in each of those games. Not not great, right? Typically, Notre Dame's leading rusher over the last five years is, has usually been around six yards per carry. So against elite defenses, running the football is often futile. It is often half as productive as as you would like it to be. So running against elite teams um, is not always sustainable. So I totally get throwing the ball. I totally get throwing the ball on the majority of plays. But when you are playing a tempo team against Oklahoma State, when you are in a shootout that is not our MO, we are not a tempo team, we are not a team that is, is trying to um, win games and shootouts and, and run air raid. That, that's not who we've been all year, and that's not our personnel. Throwing the ball on 28 of 29 snaps does not work. That's not acceptable. I'm not saying that has to be 50-50. It cannot be on 90% of pass plays. We're just out there chucking the ball in the second half. When the game was still in hand, when, when the game was still there for us to go and win, that is not the balance you can strike as a play caller.
1: Agreed. And I think one thing, this is uh, a concept that would come up in our, in our econ classes, Brett, but I think the concept of diminishing returns. The pass, on average, passing is, is more effective than running statistically, as, as we mentioned. But when you do it as much as you do, there's a, there's a point where the defense kind of like, they get familiar with the looks. They get familiar with what you're going to do. They kind of know what to expect. And, and I think that, uh, we saw a little bit of that as well. And I, I think another point was that, I saw uh, some beat writers at the game, people who were who were there in person mentioning that they thought our, our receivers looked maybe a little bit tired as the game went on too. And I think when you're like running routes every single play, you don't have as many running plays uh, and it's also a position where you know at game time we didn't have as much depth we we've, we've had um, some guys get hurt. Some of our receivers might have gotten a little bit worn out as the game went on as well. So yeah, I agree with you, Brett. I'm definitely a guy. I'm all for passing the ball a lot. But I think we we tested the limit of that uh, to this game. So it, it could be an interesting case study going forward. It's like, what ha- how does it look if we just only pass the ball? It's like, well, okay, hey, look at the Oklahoma State game. Clearly, we did it a little bit too much there. So, and again, Tommy, we kind of let Tommy let loose a little bit here. You know, I'm sure he learned some lessons from this. And hopefully we'll be better for it moving forward. I think another point on the offense that I want to make uh, moving on a bit here is that I think Buckner needed to get on the field at some point in this game. To be clear... I want to emphasize this. Jack Cohn was really good in this game. He had an exceptional game. Any fan who wants to criticize that, uh, I'm, I'm at a loss, frankly. The guy threw for 500 yards and five touchdowns. His Pro Football Focus grade, I have to mention, was not was not great. He only completed 55 percent of his pa- passes, but he went out there and, and, and he balled. Um, you know, he played really well in the first half. I think he had that one uh, that one um, hot route change that in, in the first half where he. Read the, uh, what the defense was giving to him, changed the play a bit, and then it led to a touchdown to Chris Tyree. I thought that was, that was, that was a really cool moment. And I think generally he, you know, he, he was doing a pretty good job distributing the ball there. However, certainly our offense did start stalling out in the second half. Buckner, we know he's a run threat. We kept running RPOs with Cone. The problem is, is that he's, um, he's really only a threat to throw out of those reads, and it's not, it's not really a, a, a credible a threat for him to run. So Oklahoma State's front seven, they were completely locked in from the get go and stopping the ND run game in those scenarios. And it worked. So then you combine that with playing a tempo team like Oklahoma State. Frankly, we, going, circling back to another point, we just needed to stick with the run a little bit here just to, just to slow down the game a bit. And Buckner is a way to do that. You know, you have to respect—you can't just, like, hone in on the, on, the, on the running back in those situations. You have to respect Buckner's ability to run. So that might have helped us a little bit here, given us a little more balance on offense. You know, I think, again, if you're going to throw the ball 90% of the time, though, um, I, that's, I, that's obviously why they went with Cohen. If we were seeking a little bit more balance, which we kind of made the argument that we probably should have done in this game, then I think, you know, that that gives a stronger argument for putting someone like Buckner in. But yeah, and again, I think these points are kind of interrelated. Yeah, You, ha- you want to find more balance— we were passing too much. Buckner kind of gives you an ability to do that. Don't pound the rock 40 times. So again, I think this was like another opportunity that they could have, uh they could have looked at to try to, you know, add some, add some variety to our
0: offense and that, that could have helped in the second half. I completely agree with your idea here on Buckner. I, I don't think either one of us, Mike, are, are calling for Buckner should have played the entire game or the entire fourth quarter, the entire second half, nothing like that at all. But we got into a pretty good rhythm this year of using Buckner as a change in pace, as mixing things up. And when Oklahoma State had us on the run, when our defense was gassed, when it was clear that this game was not in the um, tempo and control that we wanted, spelling Cone for Buckner for a drive or two, getting more balance with the run game, throwing them different looks, getting their defense on their heels a little bit. We did that this year a lot. Um, with with a ton of success with, with Buckner coming in for, for a drive or two. And we thought we were going to see that in this game, and, and we didn't. And that would have been one of the potential solutions for Tom Reese to find a little more balance between running and passing the ball. Coming back to the tempo point, too, we've, we've played tempo teams this year. Toledo, Purdue, UNC, they all run some version of a tempo off- offense, especially a team like UNC. And tempo leads to more plays and more drives, right? If, if you're just snapping the ball faster, you're going to have more plays. And if you have more plays in a drive and they happen faster, you'll have more drives in a game. In this game, Notre Dame's defense was on the field for 93 plays. For context, the most defensive snaps Notre Dame has played in a game all year was 79 against Purdue. Against UNC, who runs even more tempo than that, there were only 72 plays on defense. So on the whole... We averaged about 65 plays on the defensive side of the ball. So running 93 defensive plays in this game means we're on the field 40% of the time more than we were on average uh, throughout this season. So that even more goes to the point that in other games this year, when, when we were going up against tempo on the opposing side of the ball, it was even more important for our offense to have some semblance of ball control to keep them off the field, like we did against UNC, like we did against Purdue, like we did against Toledo. And that didn't happen. And and that didn't happen because Jack Cohn threw the ball 68 times. The next highest attempted passes he had on the entire season was 46. For for putting that in context, that's not just because we ran more plays, so therefore there was more passing. We threw the ball on 77% of offensive snaps in this game. The next highest on the season was against Cincinnati at 62%, which that was primarily because we, we were... Um, trailing for most of the game, so had to pass to try to get back into it. The next highest after that was Wisconsin, where we threw it on 54% of plays. So by and large, this entire season had a 50-50 run-to-pass ratio. It was pretty balanced. 77% against Oklahoma State. Trying to match their tempo with tempo and playing a shootout was just not good game planning. And again, Buckner is one solution to that. Uh, but going empty set and having four or five wideouts and and just getting into a shootout against Oklahoma State... It worked early on, but it was clear we were beating them at their game, and that was going to catch up with us, and and it did in a big way.
1: Yeah, Brett. My guess is going into this game, uh, the staff was thinking our defense would hold up better than it did. You know, potentially generate more three and outs, limit the uh, the tempo that way. Um, so I guess I, I when you consider that, I can see why maybe they were more open to this uh, offensive approach early on. And like you said, it did it did seem to work early on. However. Um, we didn't really seem to adjust it kind of as the game went on as the tempo kind of started to wear us down a little bit we didn't really adapt our game plan and like you said like buck you know uh doing more run plays and one way you do that is is with buckner like those those two points I think are interconnected in many ways um and we didn't again we didn't really do that um and that could have been one way to to again limit our defense and our team from getting completely worn down um so yeah, I mean I think um and i think frankly when it got the game got when it got to a certain point in the second half where even if we started doing that it was kind of too late we were already worn out you know when 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 your guys are tired you can make any amount of adjustments and it's really not going to matter just cuz they're not just the energy level is just completely you know they're completely tapped out at that point so again disappointing i would have liked to have seen those adjustments again hindsight's 2020 it's easy to, to uh, sit in my chair right now and criticize these moves um I mean, the game plan, I'm sure, it was really well thought out going in. But uh, clearly, like, as the game went on, it, it wasn't as effective and there weren't any adjustments made that really um, mitigated what Oklahoma State was doing. Um, now, moving on, we're going to be a little more positive here. Uh, we want to focus on some things about this game that actually make us excited moving forward. And the first thing I want to focus on uh, is the offensive line. We talked about how they had some lumps with the run game. Um, but they were certainly better, I think, in limiting havoc and in, in the past game. Um, again, in terms of limiting the line of scrimmage, some of that we mentioned that was Reese's scheme and game plan and personnel not getting Buckner in the game. But outside, I think outside of the run game, they played pretty well. We mentioned Oklahoma State's havoc rate. Uh, they averaged about 24% on the season. That was about top 10 in the country. And um, and that was, that was led mostly by their front seven. So 17% of that 24% came from the front seven. That's the most havoc generated by any front 7 in the country. Basically as disruptive a front 7 as you can have. And in this game, their front 7 actually only generated 7%. So a pretty big drop off from what they usually do. Um for reference, a 7% front 7 havoc, that would actually be dead last in the country over the course of the season. So for one of the most uh one of the most like uh impactful uh, effective front 7s, our offensive line did a really good job of limiting them. So we didn't as we mentioned, we didn't generate a push in the run game. Uh, but on 68 pass attempts, which is the bulk of what we did in this offensive game plan, Cone was only sacked twice, which was a huge issue earlier in the year. And the offensive line, a- again, they, they didn't win it. They didn't lose it. But I think they held their own. And it's a really young offensive line. It was led by underclassmen. Blake Fisher, I mean, heck of a performance by him. He only played, I don't know, a handful of snaps in the first game. uh, Was injured for most of the year and then just gets slotted right back into this. Played really well. Uh and he, I think, yeah, we have a note here that he had the best pro football focus grade of ND, any ND offensive player in this game. So true freshman, very limited experience, playing one of the best defensive fronts in all of college football. You just slot him in, and it's like he didn't even miss any time. And not only that, he played really well. So I think I feel really good about Fisher. Sophomore Christofich, freshman Joe Alt. they also had really good blocking grades in this game. Um, we're going to have these these three moving forward for the next couple years. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, – you know, we're, we're seriously contending for a Joe Moore award in another couple of years. Um, this line could, frankly, be
0: pretty scary in, in the next couple of years. I, I agree. It sounds like Jeff Quinn maybe coached his last game for Notre Dame as the offensive line coach. He was under heat all season, and, and we thought it was largely a function of just whenever you have four new starters on the offensive line, you're, you're going to take your lumps. We thought Quinn's done a great job coaching this group and recruiting this group. And we're really excited for next year having those three pieces back, right? We we talked a ton in September and October about the offensive line needs time to gel. Next year, we won't have that storyline. Next year with Blake Fisher and Joe Walt and Kristoffich back, plus guys like Carmody and Zeke Carell who who had a lot of snaps this year, we won't have to be talking about that. We we can be talking about from the get-go that this should be a really good offensive line. And I think you saw that in this game. The other area is the young skills position players. Lorenzo Styles Jr., and Mike Mayer dominated in this game. Styles had a huge breakout game on a huge stage. He went for 136 yards and a touchdown. Mike Mayer, he'll be back for one more season before likely going to the NFL draft after next year's season. He had 72 yards and two touchdowns in this game. And then Chris Tyree and Logan Diggs. I know this was a frustrating game running the ball. I know Diggs had the big fumble, and and he was personally very upset about it, had a very um, emotional tweet apologizing to, to ND Nation um after this game so really feel bad for for digs but i'm sure he will be back stronger for it and tyree he he shined in this in in this game particularly in the passing game he had six catches for 115 yards in the touchdown like you alluded to on the hot route from him and jack Cohn. so the defense i think will be fine there's a lot of injuries this year this was a fluky game It, it got a little out of hand with tempo um there's questions in the secondary That was on display in this game, along with other games. But the linebackers will be better as they get healthier. There's a ton of depth on the defensive line coming back. So I think the real question is, what's the supporting cast to support Tyler Buckner in year one as Notre Dame's new starting quarterback? And the Fiesta Bowl showed a glimmer on that. Uh, They showed a glimmer on a really young and talented offensive line, Mike, that you talked about. And they showed some really young, exciting pieces in Styles and Mayer and Tyree and Diggs, uh, among others. Being big time playmakers to go alongside of Tyler Buckner. And that should get us really excited going into next year's season.
1: Yep. These guys are really young. Um, they, they really got their first college experience, college, uh, college game experience this year. I'd expect to see a lot of them, a lot of them make some pretty big jumps in the offseason. Um, you mentioned Styles had a bit of a breakout in the Oklahoma State game. I mean, I think I, I, I would, I would not be shocked if he, just completely tears it up next year. Um, it seemed like maybe like he kind of had, he'd been getting, he'd been getting a little bit better and better each, each game this year. And it seems like maybe that game was a, a bit of an aha, like light bulb moment. And the guy's like so young. I mean, again, another full off season to just get stronger, faster. Uh, it, it gives you a lot of, a lot of cause for optimism. All right. Well, uh, so this shows a wrap. We're going to be back for one more episode in the next week or so to recap the season and then look ahead to next year. To our listeners, hang in there. This bowl game stings. The last 28 years have, have stung. Uh, luckily, I was uh, a, a pretty young kid for a lot of those years. Um, but brighter days are ahead. A lot of reasons for optimism in this program. And whenever we do get over that hump, whenever we start winning these big games. And I have to mention, we did beat Clemson last year. That was pretty big. Trevor Lawrence was out. But... That's, that's really the only example that I can think of that we've had in this time stretch. But whenever we actually start winning these big games with regularity and to the point that it feels like we could actually win a national championship, it'll, it'll be well worth the wait. So on that note, Gyrish. Gyrish.